Guys, we are going to jump into the book of Nehemiah. Um, yeah, so this is a book that we've been working through pretty much all summer. And uh, we have, I think after this morning, we will we will do Nehemiah four more times. So we are, we're on the home stretch. Uh, if you're new to Grace City, if you've just been invited along, or you happen to be walking by this morning, and, and you're just checking things out, my name is Simon. I'm the pastor here at Grace City, just one of several leaders who are to serve you as a church and um yeah the book of nehemiah is what we've been up to so we're, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time setting it up uh but basically the context is this is this is a whole series of events like we're reading the memoirs of a man named nehemiah and at this point in the history of god's people israel they're rebuilding they've been building a wall they've been working on this project to try to restore um, what had been torn down, and God's not done with his people. His story is still being told, no matter how bleak it looks, God's just never done. So this is the story of Nehemiah, and this morning we're going to go to Nehemiah chapter 8, and uh, yeah, that's where we're going to be. So if you have a Bible or a mobile device, this would be the time to open it up, or just listen. This is this is proper first century style this morning. We are outdoors. <laughs> Um, we couldn't even get like our technology working properly, so this is this is great. Here we go, Nehemiah chapter eight, starting in verse one. I'm actually going to read a few verses, uh, skip a small section just for the sake of time, um, and then we'll go from there. And all the people gathered as one man or one body into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe. To bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from and he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. In verse 9, it says, And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat and drink the sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. We pray. Father, thank you for this beautiful day. Thank you for yeah, the clouds. Father, thank you for the opportunity to gather uh, freely. Lord, to worship you, to enjoy one another, to learn together. I pray that this morning, Lord, you would, you would lead the way. You would be our teacher. And that you would help our ears to be attentive to what you want to say to us today. We love you, Father. And we pray in Jesus' name. I've entitled my sermon this morning, 
the greatest sermon in the world. <laughs> I like confidence. <laughs> if you're not a note taker, this might be the morning you begin. The greatest sermon in the world. If we back up to the end of Nehemiah chapter 6, we're given a little bit of important context. We're told that on the 52nd day of construction, they've been working on this building project, the wall, as it were, for 52 days. And finally, on the 25th day of the sixth month, Elul, they finished the project. Now, we just read that on the first day of the seventh month, five days later, the first thing they do is get Ezra the priest and the scribe and tell him to get the book. Find the sacred text, bring it out, let's have church. And literally, if the part that I skipped is rather lengthy, you can go back to it. What's described actually sounds very similar to like one of our gatherings. We're told that a wooden platform was built, and that Ezra the priest and the scribe went and stood up on it and began to read the words from the book, and he even took his time to explain the meaning, the sense of the text that he was reading. And it said that all the people stood as the book was read, oftentimes in churches, when the pastor will read the portion of the text out of the Bible that morning, the congregation will stand. If you're ever wondering where did that come from, probably Nehemiah chapter 8. And it said that they would lift their hands and they would shout amen, and they worship, bowed down to the ground. It's like a worship service with preaching and everything. What's important is that they prioritized the reading of the text from the very outset. The very first thing they did, and think about it, I mean, they've been working on this project for a few months, 52 days. It's a good chunk of time. They would have had to stop everything and focus on this project. It would have included sacrifice, organization, leadership. It was a major undertaking. What's the very first thing they do? Once the project's completed, let's come together. Let's gather everyone. Would have been thousands of people, actually, the, the, the surrounding area. Find Ezra, tell him to get the book and read. Preach God's word to people. And it says in verse 3, the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. What makes a great sermon? By the way, this will not be the greatest sermon in the world. Don't look surprised. It might be. I don't know. We'll see what happens. This sermon today that I'm preaching right now as I stand before you, it's actually a sermon about a sermon. It's a GC Meta. A Meta sermon. And I want to ask the question, what makes a great sermon? If you read through the scriptures particularly when you get to the New Testament, you find that there are sermons. Uh, none of them I probably recorded in, like, absolute detail. The book of Hebrews maybe being the exception. One of the books in the New Testament, it reads as if it's like a sermon. But we get snapshots, bits and pieces, summary form of sermons. The Sermon on the Mount is the prime example of the sermon that Jesus clearly would have been preaching as he traveled throughout the Judean countryside. But what makes a great sermon? I have some <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. 
Some of these examples or these moments that are recorded in the scripture, particularly in the New Testament, there's open-air preaching happening. Um, another famous example is Paul preaching at the Areopagus on Mars Hill. And all of the Greek philosophers have come together to hear what this guy has to say. And it says that some were, were interested. Some responded positively. Some believed and actually followed and began to put their faith in Jesus. And others, they're like, eh, it's weird. Not interested left, didn't believe. Same thing happened to Jesus. We're told that in, in at least a few instances, he would stand up and preach to the crowds, and some of them responded in faith. They said, this is it. This is what we've been looking for. We're going to follow this man. Whatever happens next, there's something to what he's saying. He speaks with authority, and others, they weren't interested. They weren't interested. What makes a great sermon? I would say number one is a hungry ear. Yep. A hungry ear. I know for a fact that right now some of you may be listening to me thinking, ah, I'm not, I'm already losing interest. The jokes aren't funny. You're slightly awkward. I don't even know where this is going. And before I've even gotten past the introduction, you're already beginning to internally criticize the sermon. Others of you, they're like, man, I'm, I'm, I'm eager to see where this is going. I've come here to meet with God, and I trust that in some way, some mysterious way, just as Ezra the scribe read and expounded upon the words of the book, now even in this moment, as the Holy Spirit is present with us, and this guy, this imperfect pastor stands up to expound upon the words that have been read from the book I trust that God is present in this place and he wants to say something to me and I'm hungry my ears are attentive and that's that's challenging that should be challenging right who am I Where? What? what's part of the scale do I lie in are your ears hungry Peter, he wrote in his first letter, 1 Peter 2, 2, like newborn babies crave spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Amen. We're encouraged, commanded to be hungry, long for pure spiritual murk, milk, milk, <laughs> I am, um, I have to tell this the story that I heard someone else tell one time, back when I was uh, studying, living, and, and going to seminary in London, one of my favorite preachers named Nicky Gumbel shared this story. He uh, he's the the vicar at a pretty well known, a really really cool Anglican church in London, uh, Holy Trinity Brompton, and he was telling this story how he was hosting. Uh, it was a Buddhist monk, but apparently he was a bit of a like a, a dignitary from where he was coming from. And for whatever reason, he was in London, and Nicky Gumbel had been asked to host this man. And, and, and he thought, what an opportunity. Okay, obviously, we have, we have a different faith, different background, but of course, I, I would love to host the man and 
can have conversation and this will be great. Maybe a friendship will come out of this. And so this man stayed at his house and he said, it was just one night. He, he was woken up in the middle of the night. Nicky Gumbel, and he looked at the clock and he saw it was about 4 a.m. and he heard the, the door, bedroom door of his guest open and footsteps walking down the hall. Nicky Gumbel said he immediately thought to himself, wow, this man's getting up at 4 a.m. He's probably, this is probably when he gets up to meditate before the sun comes up and to study his scriptures and to have his, his sort of time in the morning to, to do his spiritual practices. And so Nikki laid there for about 30 seconds and then immediately felt convicted and thought, oh, not in my house. No, no, no. Like, if this guy's getting up at 4 a.m. to do his thing, well, then I'm getting up to do my Jesus thing. So he gets up out of bed and he goes to his little study, puts his bathrobe on, goes to his little study, turns on his light, 4 a.m., opens his Bible and begins to read and to study and to meditate and to pray. An hour goes by. An hour, another hour goes by. Six o'clock in the morning. He's listening to hear if his guest has finally come out of his room. Another hour goes by. He says, finally, 7.30 a.m. He can hardly keep his eyes open. So he got up, took his robe off, got cleaned up, went out of the kitchen, and began to prepare breakfast. Finally, around 8 a.m., his guest comes out. And Nicky Gumbel says, oh, good morning. It's so good to see you. Would you like some breakfast? The coffee's ready. How did you sleep? And he said, oh, I slept great. Really, did you get enough sleep? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I solid eight hours. And Nicky Gumbel said, really? Yeah. Except for, like, the three minutes it took me to go to the bathroom around 4 a.m. <laughs> Some of you are like, wait, what? <laughs> he obviously was not up at 4 a.m. doing his thing for four and a half hours. Nicky Gumbel was determined. And he thought, man... How serious am I? How hungry am I? Where is my heart at? Am I willing to do whatever it takes to uh, cultivate an appetite for God's presence? And to go deeper into God's word to, to crave that spiritual milk. And it was a funny story, but it never left me. I've always thought, man, that's the kind of person I want to be. Not in like a in way of competition with the Buddhist who's staying in my house. But a genuine, sincere hunger to meet with God and to go deeper into his word. To hear him, to have an ear that is hungry for his word. Here's an action point for you. If you're not currently in a rhythm or a discipline of reading God's word meditating on the scriptures, going deeper in your understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done for us, the life that he's saved us for, that I cannot encourage you enough. Find a Bible reading plan. Begin to cultivate a diet of meeting God in his word so that when you come to a gathering like this, you're ravenous. You're ready. You're leaning in. Your ear is hungry. You are attentive, eager to receive what God would have for you today. That is the beginning of a great sermon. Perhaps the greatest sermon in the world. What else makes a great sermon? It says in verse 9, All the people wept as they heard the words of the law. The second thing that makes a sermon the greatest sermon in the world 
is soft hearts. Hungry ears and a soft heart. The Bible is comforting. It's edifying, meaning it, it instructs us. It gives us wisdom for living. It's encouraging. It's also confrontational, probably among many other things. But it's interesting that in this moment, there was something <clears throat> happening on an emotional level that caused the people listening to this sermon to begin weeping. We don't know exactly where Nehemiah was reading from. Probably Leviticus, maybe Deuteronomy, reading from the law, the, 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 the standard by which God's people were to live in such a way that when the nations looked on, they would say, oh, this is what your God is like. He's just, he's righteous, he's holy, he's good, he's faithful, he's loving. And when they heard these words read out, it would seem they were convicted. Perhaps they began to remember, oh, this is why our city got sacked in the first place. This is why we had to rebuild the wall because we lost our way. At some point along the way, we began to live differently. We began to disregard God's standard for how we're meant to live in relationship with him and, and others and our neighbors. And because of that, God had to take us on quite a painful journey to remind us to get us back to the place where we are now, where we can begin to rebuild and experience God's blessings again. But there would have been a bit of a jolt to the conscience. They would have been reminded that, man, we've sinned, we've rebelled, we've lost our way and and now we're having to suffer the consequences. It says in Hebrews chapter 4, the sermon that I referenced a minute ago, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart told this story before, but it's a good one. I was sharing my testimony with a very, very good friend of mine one time. We were sitting down over breakfast, and somehow there was a moment it felt appropriate, and I began to tell him how I became a Christian. Uh, specifically, like the moment, the evening where I heard someone talking about Jesus, preaching the sermon, perhaps the greatest sermon in the world, but it was very simple, and I was listening, and my heart was just cut. I felt deeply convicted for the life that I was living, who I was living for, i.e. myself. And in a moment, I felt compelled to respond. I felt like God was present in the room, reminding me the reason he created, the reason he, he gave me life in the first place, the reason he, he created me. And I realized that I'm living for myself. I'm not, I'm not fulfilling the, the purpose, the reason God put me on this earth to know him, to love him, to enjoy him, to obey him, to trust him, to, to, to be in relationship with him and, and to share his goodness with others. And man, I felt convicted. And then the, the moment came where the guy who was talking said, if you'd like to respond, 
if you feel like the Holy Spirit, if God is actually pressing on your heart tonight, and oh my goodness, I could, it was almost like I could feel that pressure on my chest. The conviction was so strong. I was 24 years old. I wasn't like a kid. I wasn't being emotionally manipulated in a moment. I made the conscious decision to stand up that night and say, I'm, I, w- I went in. I want to I stop just living for myself and, and trust this Jesus who, who gave his life for me. And so anyways, I'm telling this whole story. And my friend is sitting across the table at me over breakfast. And he looks at me and he says, Simon, I know exactly what you're talking about. I felt the same thing once. And I was shocked because he was not a Christian. I said, you have? Well, when did this happen? And what did you do? And he told me it was a few years ago. Some friends of mine invited me and my wife to a church service on a Sunday morning. There was a guy standing up talking about Jesus, just like you're describing now. And I felt exactly the way you're describing now. And I said, well, what did you do? He said, I resisted with all my might, and I got the hell out of there. Uh His words. (laughs) I said, oh, not the ending I was hoping for. soft? Perhaps. Can we choose to harden our hearts? When we're sitting in a, in a setting like this, perhaps hearing a talk, it doesn't have to be in a church service. But God's word, it's designed to confront our egos, to deal with our sin, to address the intentions of our hearts. And in a moment, we can actually feel cut to the heart, convicted good thing. That means our hearts are soft. And we have an opportunity to surrender something of ourselves to our creator and allow him to lead us into into life. And how oftentimes do we sit listening to a sermon and hear something that actually confronts us and instead of responding with a soft heart we interpret it as oh, that's offensive. Oh, that, I, that doesn't affirm my perspective. So uh, <laughs> I'm, getting, I'm getting the hell out of here. I'm leaving this place. And I would appeal to you and say, that is possible. <laughs> There's a lot of jerks out there with pulpits and microphones. But it's also possible that sometimes God, through the preaching of his word, will actually confront us. And hopefully our hearts are soft. So that we can actually recognize that God's not wanting to beat us down, but to address us as his children. To confront our egos, our selfishness, our pride, that he might help us. Eventually, if you come to Grace City long enough, I hope, I hope that something is said from the Bible that will confront you. And in a moment, you'll have to decide, am I going to resist and get out and move on? Or will I allow God to deal with me, with my heart, with my perspective? We need soft hearts. Action step. The next time you feel offended by the truth, ask God how he wants you to change. Yeah.
What makes a great sermon? Number three, more joy and more generosity. Verse 12, after the sermon, it says, All the people went their way to eat and drink, to send portions to those who didn't have any, and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that had been declared to them. How do you know a sermon's really, really great? When it's all said and done and the dust is settled, we've listened to God speak to us, our ears were hungry, our hearts were soft, then what? What's supposed to happen when we get up and we get on with the rest of our lives? What should the, the fruit be? Well, a lot could be said. In fact, there's a whole list of fruits of the Spirit that we should be considering as we ask the question, well, what made this sermon greater than another? In this particular sermon, the fruit, the outworking, what happened next was a whole lot of joy and generosity. See, God's word, it might confront us, it might call us to change and be honest about our attitudes, about our pride, about our self-centeredness. I mean, if it doesn't, it's like, well, who, who are you? Like, what, what, do you have any self-awareness? But when it does that, the intended purpose isn't to just leave us sort of groveling on the ground, weeping in our in our in our in our self-loathing. It's not meant to leave us dead in the grave. It breaks us down, it confronts our hearts so that we might be built up and experience more of God's joy. It is his joy that is our strength. Last week, we looked at the book of Daniel, or we referenced Daniel, Daniel chapter 10, and I made the point that when he met God in this moment, he had this angelic visitation, and his initial reaction was to fall on his face in abject terror because he was aware that he was in the presence of the holy. That's right. That's called the fear of the Lord. It's not fun, per se, but it's healthy. It's right. Why does God do that? Why does he come into our life or situation being confronting us and messing with us and telling us, actually, you're wrong about that? I want to now renew your mind and give you my perspective on what it looks like to flourish in life and relationship and to live a life that actually reflects who I am and what I'm like. Why does God do that? So that he can just control everyone? And point down at us and feel like he's the big man while we just squirm and, and, and writhe on the ground in all of our weakness and shortcomings? No. That would be incredibly sick. God breaks us down so that he might build us up. What makes a great sermon? It's when you've had a cathartic moment of confession and repentance that you might get on with the rest of your life experiencing more of his joy, more freedom, more life more fulfillment, deeper satisfaction, healthy relationships, and generosity. We would be compelled to say, man, I'm, woo! God has given me his grace. He's given me a new heart. He's, he's addressed me as a son or a daughter. He's dealt with me, but not to leave me on the ground to pick me up and to fill my heart afresh with his spirit and with new life with joy 
share his goodness with others. The people of God should be the most generous people on the planet. Action point. Identify one way that you are blessed today. Name it, thank God for it, and then go find one way to pay it forward. What makes a sermon great? Hungry ears? Soft heart? More joy and generosity? There's one more point. And this is very, very important. We stopped in verse 12. But if we keep reading, verse 13, we're told that on the second day of the seventh month, the sermon was preached on the first day, five days after the wall had been finished. The next day, the people come back to Ezra and Nehemiah. They said, let's, let's, keep, let's keep going. Let's dig deeper. Get the book out. We want, it, we want to do a study. We're told that on the second day of the seventh month, they discovered in the book that in ten days, or excuse me, in two weeks, on the fifteenth day of the seventh month, there was a feast. The Feast of Booths. And so they began to prepare. This is something that, uh, practicing Jews, observant Jews still do to this day, and even some Christians who, who uh, discover how they incorporate some of the Jewish traditions, um, as Jesus did, into their faith. But the Feast of the Booths, this would have been an annual festival would have started on the 15th day of the 7th month every year, and they would build like uh, little huts out in their backyards on the terrace. And they would live in these little huts, and they would eat some food, and it was a way, if you were a kid, it would have been super fun, right? Actually, it would just be super fun, period. But they would live in these little booths as a reminder of when God met them in Egypt, when they were slaves still stuck in this old life. And God met them there and intervened. He rescued his people. He set them free from slavery. He fought for them. And after they were delivered out of slavery, they began to wander through the desert as nomads, and they lived in these little huts, these tents, these tabernacles for quite some time. And God took care of his people. He fed them. He gave them water. He led them. He taught them. It was quite a journey, and that was the Feast of Booths. But here's the crazy part. This is this is nuts. They missed Yom Kippur. The Feast of Booths would happen on the 15th day of the seventh month every year, but on the 10th day of the seventh month, they were meant to celebrate Yom Kippur. That's the Day of Atonement. It is like the most important day of all days in their calendar. It's the day where they're meant to remember how they were delivered out of Egypt in the first place. God had intervened and he judged Egypt. He judged the slave owners, Pharaoh, the ones who were oppressing his people, exploiting the weak and the vulnerable. And God intervened and he said, you need to take the blood of the lamb wipe it up at your doorpost and I'm going to send an angel of death to judge anyone who wasn't under 
the blood of this lamb. It's all deeply metaphorical, but real. And God set his people free. They missed the Day of Atonement. What makes a sermon great? Well, I'll tell you what makes a sermon suck. Is if you forget Jesus. If you forget Jesus, it's not a sermon. It's talk, it's a speech, maybe good advice, maybe a stern lecture. But if Jesus isn't in the middle, it's not a great sermon. It's not a Christian sermon at all. What makes a sermon great is Jesus in the middle. When a Bible talk directs our attention, our affection, our hope, our hurts, our lives back towards Jesus, the Word becomes living and active. Because Jesus is the Word of God, incarnate, not just an ideology, but God himself who reveals himself to us along the way. The way Jesus did as he walked with the disciples down the road to Emmaus. Door of Hope Northeast. As we open the scriptures, he opens our hearts and our minds. And he walks with us, talks to us, gives us strength for the journey, compassion for our fellow travelers, conviction to repent, courage to change, and hope hope for this life and eternity to come because of his great victory on the cross because he made atonement for us but if we miss the day of atonement if we simply skip to the feast of booths we lose the plot we forget like what is this journey for how long have we been in the desert the feast of booths was meant to remind the people of how god took care of them while they journeyed as nomads and temporary shelters as they wandered about the Sinai Desert, and so much of life can feel like we are traversing a desert. God does provide for our needs. He takes care of his children, but often it can begin to feel like we're merely working to reach our destination, straining towards the goal. And that's okay, because that is a part of the journey. In fact, we're told to strain towards our destination, to work towards reaching our goal. That is our home with Jesus. But if we forget the Day of Atonement, which is easy to forget, it's easy to overlook, if it wasn't for the blood of the Lamb, we would never have gotten out of Egypt in the first place. What makes a great sermon? What makes... A sermon, the greatest sermon in the world. It's one that reminds us that because of what Jesus has done for us, I am free. I am free. As we traverse the desert of life, as we live as aliens in this world, like nomads with our little shelters, enjoying the ups and the downs, bringing our hurts and our hopes to our maker, allowing him to break us down and build us up us with his joy, causing us to be generous people as we learn to hunger for his word, asking him to give us soft hearts along the way. We mustn't ever, ever forget that we are free. We have been delivered. 
We have been made new, and he's not done yet. Life is long. Life is hard. It's full of ups and downs. The good news is that God came and dwelt among us. He died for us. I am forgiven. I am right before God. He's not looking down on me to punish me because perfect love isn't about punishment. It's about learning to become more and more like Jesus, and that's where the freedom is. And if you hear a sermon that somehow can land right about there, you may have just heard the greatest sermon in the world. Amen. What do you guys think? Top five, maybe? <laughs> greatest sermon in the world. Pretty good. Can I just make one brief comment? Sure, yes. I was listening to Simon Preach and talking about the word. I got this definite impression that even the trees were leaning forward to hear it. And then I got this in Isaiah 55. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. And the mountains and the hills before you shall break forth with singing. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. I thought that that was what's happening here. As we, as we look into his word, even the trees were. Father, thank you. Thank you for that, Ken. And Father, thank you that these aren't just words. I'm merely attempting to be obedient. And I know it's not about me. It's not about Great City. Heck, Lord, we bless Door of Hope Northeast. I pray that as they get ready to gather and worship you and hear your word preached in sermon form, that you would meet with them. You would meet with your people wherever we're gathering around the world. As we look to you, Lord Jesus, bringing our hearts to you, attempting to lean in and hear your voice today, for today, Lord, I pray that you would continue the work that you've started. Lord, would you fill us afresh with your joy? Would you guys mind lifting your hands with me? Lord, would you fill our hearts afresh with your joy? Lord, where there's areas that, that you want to deal with, Lord, our sin, our hurts, our insecurities, just our pride. Lord, would you, would you do it? Would you help us? But Lord, I pray more than anything that we would leave this place knowing that it is your joy that is our strength. And that you've given us more than enough. Lord, not just to get through the desert of life, but to flourish in the desert place. You are our living rock who goes with us. You lead the way. You give us the water, which is your spirit. You feed us with your bread, your body, and your word. Father, we bless Portland and the whole surrounding area, Lord, where there's darkness. Lord, I pray that you would shine your light. Shine it through us, Lord. Help us to be salt and light in the world around us. Would you teach us how to be generous people? Help us, Lord Jesus, to not forget you and the work that you've done. We are your children. We are free. In the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's worship.